You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Andrew, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? All right. So, uh, you know, many, many of you may or may not know me. I have a couple of books out, The Disciplined Investor. Uh, I also have uh, a, a podcast called The Disciplined Investor. It's pretty popular on iTunes. It's uh, also uh, DH Unplugged, which we do every uh, Tuesday. And myself and John C. Dvorak, I also run a portfolio or several different portfolio for clients in different strategies. One's the TDI managed growth strategy, one's the arrow quant strategy, uh, an algorithmic strategy, as well as uh, more of a uh, traditional strategy we call the global allocation. So we actually uh, uh, help people by trying to impart some advice through podcasts and things of that nature, blogging, uh, education, as well as uh, help people through uh, money management. So there's a lot going on there. Very interesting. So like, tell us a little bit about like your background and how you got into trading and portfolio management. Yeah, so I started, you know, there's a couple of different ways to get into this field. So the first way is to be involved with a bro- big brokerage house, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way is to be involved with maybe an insurance company. Well, I started the insurance company route back in 85 or 86. And I quickly knew that I didn't want to do that. I want to be more involved in the area of markets and investments. So um, actually, I started to research and do a lot of work into finding anybody in any thing that could give me really good insight into markets, uh, consumed as much as I could in terms of materials and reading and learning and going after the biggest in the industry, trying to learn from them. And uh, pretty much in 87, we saw that market correction that was pretty dynamic and drastic. And that was a big education in terms of uh, from the outside, because I still really wasn't in that at the time, right? So that was really from an outside view, a really good look at what could happen. Well, in about 1990, I started working in the area of helping people with financial planning, got my CFP certification, and started working with more money, uh, pool assets like mutual funds, et cetera. And then from there, really got more involved in the research of metals, technicals in the, in, in the 90s, we'll call it. Did a lot of trading on a day trading basis. So I covered the range of long-term trading to very short-term trading. I have a real good insight into both of those. And then somewhere in the 90s, I started working with a process I called a discipline at the time. And it was a process of looking at the quantitative, looking at uh, screens and, and looking at fundamentals, then breaking down companies that made it through those very rigorous screens to the fundamentals, and then finally technicals. We call it quanta, uh, funda, techna. That process of finding stocks that meet certain criteria and investing in those, uh, you know, using certain conditions to that that they meet. That's so interesting. You talked about quantitative. In in my book, I also talk about the the applications of quantitative analytics using statistics and probabilities and histograms to identify interesting opportunities, taking away some of the ambiguous components of traditional technical analysis. How would you Mm -hmm. describe some of this as well? Because believe it or not, there's a lot of people that are listening in and just a lot of general investors and retail investors that have, they're unable to distinguish the difference. And I believe that despite it being potentially under the umbrella of technical analysis, it still represents its own kind of school of thought 
that is probably more connected to the scientific method and actually would argue for, you know, statistical significance through, through, you know, T tests, P, P test scores. And, mm -hmm. and so right. how would you describe it? Because there's a lot of people here saying, what are you two guys talking about? Right. Well, one of the things that, that I think I can differentiate for a moment is the difference between quant investing and quantitative analysis. So what we do is quantitative analysis. One of the big things in investing is that emotions get in the way of a lot of decision making. And you may, for example, know a name. You know, you may have the use of a particular uh, 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 a, a good. Maybe you have an Apple iPhone. So you're very much, you know, hey, you know, I love Apple. And no matter what happens, I love Apple. And I'm going to invest in Apple. No matter what happens, I'm going to stay invested in Apple. And sometimes that could be the undoing of an investment process because when you get so emotionally attached to a particular uh, instrument or maybe a particular name, that kind of skews your outlook. Now, also, we'll go one step further. Maybe you're on hard times and maybe the, uh, you know, you lost your job and maybe for whatever reason you're having a difficult time and things aren't good. You're unhappy and you look at the world and the economics of your particular region really negatively. So what we try to do here is on a quantitative analysis standpoint, we utilize screens that look at things like simple things but yet very uh, advanced. So we look at growth rates of a company's earnings, growth rates of a company's revenues. We look at margin and how that's worked. We look at the trading volumes and the um, levels that they have been recent. We look at about 25 different core important areas of the fundamentals, some technicals of a stock itself. We look at about 5,000 stocks and you know break it down and usually somewhere between maybe 100 to maybe 40, 40 to 100 stocks will make it through the screen. Okay. That's how rigorous it is. Okay. And what happens there is those are the base stocks that we will look at to further analyze. Mm -hmm. Then we go to the next step. The next step is let's look under the hood. Let's take a look at exactly what's happening in each one of these stocks. And if they are all solid and if we can see that there is maybe a good product line, maybe there is something special about what they're doing, good management, what we'll do is then go to the final step which is technical analysis. Now that brings in a lot of things we've been talking about, but you have things that we'll look at. Um, for example, we'll look at the trend, very simple trend. We'll look at things of the nature of, okay, where is the breakout breakdown points utilizing things like uh, a, a um, volume and price type of methodology. Mm -hmm. We'll look at a variety of different things. Now the bigger picture, stepping back one second, is what's the markets doing? You know, what are the markets? What's the trend of the markets? And then that can then finally put us into Okay, what is the positioning of a portfolio in terms of percentage weighting in equities uh, and considering the fundamentals of the positions we have as well as the technicals of them and put that all together to come up with what's going to be there, what the percentages will be of the allocation, et cetera. So it's this whole process. Now, finally, the other thing that I, I just talked about this on one of my podcasts maybe two weeks ago was the whole idea of setting targets. Now, sometimes you want to make sure that you have very hard, fast targets, particularly when you're trading on a shorter-term basis. And, and people, a lot of times, will let things get away from them. So they have a stock they bought at 50. They set a target that they see that fundamentally and technically they want to hold it till it's 65, let's say, as a number. It gets to 65, and they hold on to it. They don't sell it. It gets to 70. They don't sell it. It gets back to 62, let's say, and they're like, well, it was higher. I'll hold on to it. So they don't use methods disciplines and targets that are absolute, they're more so using their gut feel. And we think that it's really important to set some very strict guidelines on certain 
positions. There's some certain positions you want to hold because of maybe something's coming out in the future and you're willing to accept the volatility, et cetera. But generally speaking, it's important to set some general guidelines on how you're going to know when to buy or sell. It could be a fundamental change in the stock. Uh, it could be a technical change in the stock or it can be a combination. This is very interesting. I think the holy grail for investing and, and at least swing trading, for example, is to find some kind of like general universal approach, like in, in science and, and, and physics, for example, there, there always seems to be a disconnect between quantum physics and, and the analysis of, of larger, uh, cosmology, for example, and they seem to be mm -hmm. separated. Um, I feel like the same thing is, is the case, um, for investing and trading where there is typically or can be a bifurcation between price and valuation. And it's how oh, yeah. you address um, those two components that allow you to, I guess, stay in the game, especially if you're particularly into asset management for to some extent is, you know, despite whatever anyone says, fund managers, you know, this is that there are, you know, performance metrics and and people are constantly going to reevaluate how you're doing, quote unquote, currently, for example. So. Um, you know, if it's open end funds, so investors can redeem any time. If it's closed, then you know they could be disgruntled if there there's too much of a disconnect. So one of the things mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to say is that it sounds as if, on, at least on paper, that you try to mitigate all of those components. You're looking at the valuation of the business and the fundamentals. You're taking into account. Um, you know, the, the trend of the market, for example, and you're also taking a look at the occasional price indicators and, and maybe, you know, connecting that with, with quants to some extent. That, that's, that's extremely fascinating and it's very similar to some extent of, of what I try to do. I try to keep it simple in terms of the assessment of a price and sometimes for volume bars, we'll even go as deep as looking into like bid and ask and lifting of offers or hitting of bids, um, to some yep. extent as well. But, um, so Andrew, what, what, what would you give advice in terms of 2015? What, what do you see in your crystal ball or your crystal quant ball, for example? Yeah. Well, one of the things is we've seen a lot more volume come into the markets and a lot more volatility already just in the short time that 2015 has been around. We've seen that the range of daily moves has been about 1% on the S&P 500, just as using that as a gauge. Mm -hmm. Whereas last year it was, you know, about a half a percent. So we're seeing double the potential volatility already. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other things that seems to be very much an important factor in 2015 is going to be currencies. We've seen that there was a tremendous amount of money that was moved from outside the U.S., kind of anywhere outside the U.S., into U.S. markets. And that was, you can see it very distinctly and you can see that the, the trail of it from the fact that currencies around the world were dropping and the U.S. dollar was increasing concurrent with market moves. So, for example, when we did see the dollar coming up over the last month and a half or so, two months there was a sweeping move into equities in the U.S. as well as bonds. As we start to see the U.S. dollar hit a high and start to move down a bit, the yen start to move up, there was a reverse situation happening. And it was kind of like the money in and money out from foreign investors is really the very significant piece of why markets are moving. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's also, there's also news. There's also other things. But there is a very big appetite for the U.S. right now. Now, that being said, 
if the U.S. has any kind of hiccups, if there are any economic numbers that don't really go well, if there are any particular earnings numbers that don't go well, there could be a significant move to the other side, a real flush out of these kinds of investments in the U.S. So what we're seeing is right now we are trying to look at the U.S. as an area while it is strong and maybe even the strongest in the world. We're really concerned about some of the valuations that we're seeing in markets in the U.S. And we're finding that there could be some opportunities outside the U.S. And particularly reversion to the mean type of transactions and potential investments in things like commodities. I mean, we know that oil has just been obliterated. Right. So we've seen we've seen the oil companies, you know, get hit right along with that. The big question is right now, why is oil being hit? Is it simply the whole idea that there's excess demand, um, excess supply, excuse me, not enough demand? Or is it something else like the OPEC nations trying to break the back of the U.S. frackers and drillers? Now, here's my point. If it is simply just supply and it can be explained away just like that, then oil prices are reasonably level at this point here. If it's a demand issue, on the other hand, that's a big concern because what that's telling me is that the global environment and the the, the amount of fuel and gas and don't forget that petroleum products make up things like lipstick and diapers and all sorts of denture adhesives. There's all sorts of things that petroleum is used for. If in fact there is less demand for the product, that is a bigger concern of mine and that would lead me to believe that there's going to be a slowdown not only further in the globe but also in the U.S. So I think that we really have to be on the watch in 2015 for that and the fact that the U.S. is on a path to raise rates right. where we're seeing that the rest of the world is in an, on the opposite end of things. Which is really interesting because you mentioned if the U.S. is on the path to raise rates, it's it's hard to decouple that U.S. dollar thesis. I, I took a, my, my largest position in the fund is actually in U.S. dollar. I did that uh, during the summertime. And I, I mentioned on, mm -hmm. on Frank Curgio's show that my, my second largest position is the S&P 500 because yep. of, of the, you know, the, the multinational component of it. It's, it's hard to, to make a case um, of, of another, you know, op quality opportunity costs that, that matches these markets in, in terms of, of liquidity and, and size and scale. And if you take a look at what, what everyone's doing, uh, you know, unless prices is, is truly confirming that. Now we do see a pullback. I've definitely minimized my position in equity exposure as we've seen what's happened over the last several days. But, you know, until the party is really over, it, it's hard to, to be cautious about that. I'm, it's interesting because you're sitting on the other side of the world and I'm sitting here, um, in Asia. And despite what everyone tells me, Andrew, um, a lot of people here in Asia are probably non-believers about Asian economic growth. I'm, you know, I'll spend time in Hong Kong, talk to some of the largest banks here, and they'll just say, you know, whatever, um, BRICS with excluding India, for example, there, there's, there's no likes to this idea. And, you know, it's, it, I've always said the U.S. is like the, the best house in a really terrible block right now, unfortunately. Well, but at the same time, I think that some of the more developed areas in Asia, for example, China, are problematic. See, one of the things that has happened, and, and you know this pretty well, one of the things that has happened over time is that manufacturing is a big component of an emerging market startup. 
So, so what we see is the offshoring of all sorts of either manufacturing or help centers. And we've seen that there has been a very consistent maneuver by companies to find the cheapest labor possible. Right. So they started in China some years ago, and China was very cheap. Well, then China starts to grow, China, their economy. And what we see is that the workers who have been working very hard for low wages start to rebel. And they say, you know what? We see what we're producing. We see the kind of numbers that we're producing here. And you know what? We want a better life. We want running water. We want electricity. We want, you know, bathrooms. We want all the things that we should have. And that's going to require more money. We require, you know, we want health insurance. We want benefits. We want retirement. And what happens when that gets to that point, that inflection point of when workers are requiring more money, the manufacturing costs probably will start moving higher. The next move was to India, right? We saw that there was a big move to India. And the same thing is happening. Now we saw that a lot of these places, we saw that they're starting to move many of their help centers to Philippines. Yep. Philippines is very cost effective, et cetera. So there are countries in the Asian area that you're going to see this sweeping move of the uh, establishment growth due to the fact that the manufacturing and offshoring move through the more expensive areas to the cheaper areas. One of the areas we talked about, Vietnam, is, is an area that's yep. still inexpensive and is being utilized dramatically and that's why we saw that market do so amazingly last year vietnam bangladesh the one issue andrew and i thought about this because i recently um did a conversation here about uh foreign direct investment into vietnam the whole objective is is a country like vietnam bangladesh yeah they don't mind taking some of the hand-me-downs from from you know china and india it's, it's great now but if if you think about the the demographics um very similar to like what's what's happened in Japan and the US in which your demographic was where with the baby boomers right make up a majority of the population well about 10 what 20 years from now because the, the average age in in Vietnam for example is maybe like 30 so imagine 20 mm -hmm. years from now where you'll start to see the same baby boomer demographic phenomenon in a place like Vietnam where the workforce is actually minimize as you know new projects new foreign direct investment opportunities come in i do not know if these countries have the ability to absorb all this potential cheap labor or it's going to get handed down to even lower frontier markets like you know um, myanmar cambodia laos for example and another trend that you need to take into account is the whole like uh, reemergence of, of robotics and automation and their impact to insourcing for many of these, these companies as well. So, so definitely things to keep on the radar is that will these, um, how do you want to describe them? Second tier frontier markets be able to absorb all the, the labor demands that multinationals have from countries like China and India as they move up the value chain. But if you take a look at their demographics and their current um, capital market environment for, for trade, will it be able to absorb and, and per accommodate these, these foreign multinationals in a position where it's adequate enough to maintain and hold the business? Because as you've seen- Well, the, and, and, but the big, the big point, yeah. yeah, the big point is going to be infrastructure development. That's exactly. going to be the first starting process. And if the countries can find it and figure this out and know that there's going to be a requirement for infrastructure. Listen, Vietnam, uh, when I was there, one of the first things we had to learn as a uh, tourist was how to cross the street because 
if you didn't do that, you'd be mowed down. Right. I mean, there's, you know what I'm talking about, right? So there, there's a tremendous amount of people, tremendous amount of traffic. There's inadequate, inadequate infrastructure. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, there's inadequate, uh, you know, basic things that are in Vietnam. If that can be expanded and upgraded, uh, that would be great. Same thing with Cambodia. Cambodia is even, you know, more of a problem. And, you know, Cambodia, you know, you have a lot of, uh, uh, I think there's less people in Cambodia and less traffic and less uh, congestion than in, in many areas of Vietnam. But still, these areas, and, it, and it's, it's similar to other countries around the world that have a similar situation, is that there's an overpopulation with lack of infrastructure development. And this is something that's been going on for a long time. Now, they did have a big boom in infrastructure, but it didn't keep pace with what they needed. If you can continue to do so and bring that to them, that's where the change is going to happen. Correct. If it's centrally planned um, development of infrastructure that is not going in conjunction with with you know the current changes and waves in the market, then you're going to have an issue. You know, like I, I talk to mm -hmm. various different people at the government of Singapore that talk about how you know they're a little bit more cautious about investing, especially when you take a look at what's happened in the South China Sea. And, and the riots that occurred. I mean, that made national headlines last year, right? In, in Vietnam. Yep. And, and, and constantly, constantly. Exactly. So, well, and, and Japan and all that. And by the way, just to, for those people that don't know what this is, there's a little bitty island area uh -huh. that is pretty much, uh, hotly contested by almost every major nation in, in, uh, in the area as it's mine and I own it. And everybody else says it's mine. I own it and don't get near it. Exactly. It, it's kind of a weird, it's a weird phenomenon. And the, the theory as well, there may be oil there and all that. Well, nobody can develop anything. Nobody can do anything because anytime anybody steps in there, the other guys say, hey, get off. So big problem, big problem. So according to international law, because I actually had to look into this, I know that there's special projects that are happening for all of these countries to develop infrastructure, like you said, on all of these islands. The, the comment is that according to international law, if you can demonstrate infrastructure and some population besides just a military presence, it justifies your case to this sovereign claim to some of these islands. So you're right. There is, uh, potentially a lot of commodities, uh, you know, for deep sea drilling within the South China Sea. That's why it's, mm -hmm. it's a hotly contested, um, area. Number two is for countries that are much smaller than China, they need to take a much more uh, like multi-country approach. So that's why when you take a look at the refinery developments for countries like Vietnam, you start to see the number of multinational partners that they're trying to um, have involved. The PTT in Thailand made headlines um, last year for an outrageous claim that they're going to invest about $27 billion into a petrochemical refinery in, in central Vietnam, which many would argue is not strategically positioned correctly. But if you take into account where these incidences happen within the South China Sea, then you'd understand why you'd want international vessels to come in and out of that region, because it allows Vietnam some more additional sovereign claim as there's more presence in terms of commerce and trade. So very interesting. Like they're trying to get the Russians. But one, one of the problems is uh, I believe that Petroviet is it Petro Vietnam? Yeah. Petro Vietnam is the that's the largest uh, oil company in Vietnam, right? Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't that owned by the uh, government? Yeah, it's it's a state-owned enterprise. Right. That's a problem. 
See, what happened in the same thing in Petrobras and, you know, any of these state-owned, we have to start taking the state ownership and privatizing it. That's the next step that's going to be major because once you have that, then you have outsiders that will come in to help develop. If you have a company that's owned by the government and is a sovereignty uh, situation, what happens is that we know that governments don't make the best decisions when it comes to finances. This is a universal truth, okay? So the bottom line is that when you look at this and you look at what's gone on in with the oil right now, this is not doing well for the coffers of Vietnam, right, in, in terms of this one company. Um, if it, on the other hand, was a private company, they can go out and get all sorts of funding and they can do things that are much differently, probably much more cost effective, bring in outside partners. This is an issue with some of these emerging and frontier nations that they need to kind of uncouple some of the various infrastructure areas, whether it's roads, whether it's telecommunications, or whether it's um, energy, um, maybe not all of it, but they need to make it uh, privatized. That's a big issue and why there's a major difference in the developed countries of the world compared to the frontier and the emerging. That's why you go back to the whole thesis about opportunity costs, because does one take that that capital risk of trying to hope that there will be changes in some of these areas in the world or when you take a look at like the model and foundation i've i've talked a lot to some other uh guests on the show about like just the whole fundamental foundation of america and what makes it you know a very interesting country based on natural law for example founding of liberty and free markets that that's why people go back andrew to some extent you know what i mean despite all the economic growth that happens in all of these countries people are still participating in these EB-5 programs, investing up to $500,000 to acquire an American citizenship. Despite America also starting to act very protectionist, right? You, I, I'm starting to see how hazardous FINRA and FATCA can be because, you know, I, I deal with an offshore fund. So as much as I'd love to communicate with American investors about, you know, the, the wonders of, of tax uh, efficiency, there's, you can only do so much, but people are, I know, I, that. I know you know about this too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit, we're a little bit more open here, a little easier here. I mean, obviously we have a much more uh, depth. I mean, if we were to only invest in us based companies that technically only do business in the U S we still have a much larger pool than exactly. pretty much any other country in the world. So there's a lot more uh, opportunity here, a lot more um, ideas. On the other hand, I will share with you that um, I think that, much of the, you know, I always talk about a boat and, you know, you, if you have a boat and everybody's standing on one side uh, and that one last person gets to, you know, you may see the boat tip over. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot on the short side of, of oil right now. There's a lot on the long side of the dollar, long side of the U.S. stock market, as you mentioned. Right. And as I have been talking about, I think that we are a little bit overdone. When you look at the trade weighted uh, valuation of currencies and you look at, for example, the euro, the U.S. dollar, and the yen, the yen is, is significantly undervalued compared to its 10-year average, uh, which is a, a line that we'd like to watch for. The euro is also undervalued, and the U.S. dollar is overvalued. Mm -hmm. uh, there looks to me to be a little bit too much excitement about the U.S. markets. And while we can, in fact, do well for a long period of time because of a low interest rate environment that we have right now. Mm -hmm. The fact is that, you know, we are not an oasis. We are not necessarily an island and all of the global slowing in China, in the deflation in, in Europe and the low cost of oil and the effects that you have in, in the sanctions on Russia and Venezuela and all those problems. That's going to spill over. Just can't not, you know, we're not, 
we're not isolated. But I, I think that a lot of foreigners are thinking that we are isolated from all this. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem logical to me. Yeah, definitely. It, you know, w- one of the key things that the audience can take away is, you know, investing and trading is very much like a game of, of musical chairs or, or hot potato, right? The, the ideas that we've discussed about maybe, maybe now is not the ide- ideal time to be buying U.S. equities or U.S. dollars. If you have those positions, you can continue to let your profits run. But you're right, Andrew. It's, mm-hmm. it's about thinking about, okay, so what's, what's next? What's, what's the new position that can develop and unfold? Um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. until we get some kind of clear indication about that, we, we really don't know exactly for sure. I, I'm, I'm one of those people, like, like you talked about as well, is that I'm, I'm separating dogma from, you know, what's pragmatic and what's actually happening. I guess that's, I don't know if that qualifies as being. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, one of the things, I'll tell you something. One of the interesting ways to invest is a very simple strategy. It is uh, so basic, it's almost, ridiculous, but and I'm not saying it always works, but I'm just going to share this with you as an idea, just something. Okay. Reversion to the mean. It's, it's just this old process of, okay, if something is overvalued, it's probably going to come back to valuation over time. If something is severely undervalued. It's going to come back to valuation over time. Now there are times that that doesn't play out where if you're so undervalued, maybe a particular name, uh, well, you're going to go bankrupt. On the other hand, there's something that could be overvalued for a long period of time and really be there for a long time. It doesn't usually stay that way. Something is going to snap one way or the other. Either the valuation will catch up to the price or the price is going to catch up to the valuation either way. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I find very interesting is this whole oil thing. I think this is really an important, it's a very important uh, item to look at right now. And the question of whether or not this is going to um, play out uh, to, you know, this, this, you know, now we're starting to hear $20 oil. Right. Uh, you know, the, the idea that only a few years ago we were talking about peak oil and the fact that we were running out to now, just a few years later, we have too much that we don't even know what to do with it is, is pretty ridiculous. Mm-hmm. The point is that both sides of that discussion are absolutely wrong, right? The, the idea that we're running out of oil and it was going to run to 200 and now it's going to run down to 20. Now, again, anything can happen because you have emotions that are driving investments and your and fear and greed, of course. But one of the things I think is, is interesting is the, the ability for companies to adjust and adapt. So if we believe that companies are, gen, generally speaking, companies can adjust and adapt, particularly in the private sector uh, and, and, and you know publicly traded but private, uh, and if the case can be made that there is the opportunity to see a reversion to the mean, especially when something has been hit so hard and so fast, I would consider some of the oil companies, particularly in the U.S., that may have some significant, almost uh, once in a lifetime to a degree, opportunity to make some money in. And even going one step further is some of the preferred stocks of many of the companies around the world that in the oil sector that have been just obliterated. And if they don't go out of business, you're going to see a major pop. So one of the things that we're doing for 2015, the theme is, um, let's look at the reversion to the mean trade for oil. Now you have to hold your nose a little bit when you invest here. Okay. Because you may see a lot of volatility, but the question really remains, is oil going to stay here forever? If it does stay here, how much is it going to really affect the profitability? Transocean uh, symbol rig is down, I don't know, 75% or something like that from its high. That's a significant move for a major company. Now, what will happen is in a material sector, different than some of the other sectors out there, 
is that they will artificially create their own demand by shutting down production. They can continue to shut down production. It will cost them money. They will lay off people. They will cut expenses and they will cut it down to the bone, much like what Alcoa did many years ago and then, re, you know, reinvigorated themselves. But this will happen. Now, it may not be an overnight situation unless we do see that oil sees a major short squeeze and moves back to, let's say, 60. But if you see a $60 oil print on WTI crude, some of these companies are going to get a massive move higher, massive. So this is something that we're looking at for 2015 as a opportunity to play. And then also, if there is any resolution to Russia, which I'm not holding my breath for that one, because I think that Putin is going to, you know, he, he's the bear, right? You know, and he's the, he's the, he's looking at himself as the victim in all of this. Um, Putin is probably not going to back down to all that's happening, because if he would have backed down or he was going to back down, he would have blinked already. And there's no blinking going on. And it's it's almost emboldened him to his position. What I would add on top of this, Andrew, is is yes. Um, the, as as the price of oil is declining, one one can take a look at where where's the opportunity for the multinationals, the big oil, and the oligarchs, right? The, one of the bigger trends, despite like this economic um, events of of the the decline of the oil price. What one might have to consider is the possibility of the, the contagion factors with, with oil, right? Its impact on potential small regional banks and the trend of big banks, which are too big to fail, to continue to roll up all of these small banks, be effectively taking out the possibility of you know, people being able to participate or create like, you know, credit unions and small regional banks. And also the opportunity for big oil companies in which were probably less positioned to, to benefit from the shale boom now to be able to, uh, provide some, some capital investments to acquire some of these cheaper positions. It always seems to be the case, right? As we've seen is that the, the bigger, uh, you, we talk about the wealth divide, right? The rich are going to get richer from this event and effectively mm-hmm. the poor are going to get poorer. And what scares me the most, and, but as an investor, we can exploit some of this is what scares me the most is that this trend is going to be in continuation. I think this is the trend of all trends, basically, right? As everything mm-hmm. shifts higher, this is not conspiratorial. This is more about, you know, what's happening, right? Multinationals. It's, are- survi- it's, su- it's survival. It's survival. Exactly. It's At its core, it's survival. And, yeah, and, and, and the strong eat the weak. Yeah. yeah. And, and the banks have been absorbing other banks and there, there is really high potential, just like we see what happened. Don't forget what happened in the healthcare sector over the last several years. Yeah. There was a patent cliff and the patent cliff scared the hell out of many of these pharmaceutical companies. They had to do something. What did they do? Well, instead of trying to just do R and D on their own, they bought up other companies and with it, they bought some good ones and some bad ones, but then they had some blockbusters in there that allowed them to really expand their offerings tremendously through the distribution channels. It was a very cost-effective way for them to add on potential opportunities for new drugs. And if you take that to the next step, obviously this really was a big theme in 2014, but if you take that to the next step, and in theory, if you, if you look at the multinationals, the big companies out there, the potential for them to buy up some of the small companies that are already on proven oil grounds that are doing business, but maybe have to shut their operations right now, but they don't have to then look for oil, no more research, no more, you know, where is the actual oil, but we know where it is. All we have to do is wait for that. And then we buy the company at a distressed price 
and then fold it into hours. And then what we have is the opportunity to pump oil because we know it's there. So this then benefits them. So the opportunity to look at the oil sector as in its very, 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 very early stages of what happened to healthcare companies, I think is very dynamic. Yeah. And even taking one next evolution of the healthcare thing is then you have um, the government getting involved with like programs like obviously the U.S.'s attempt at, at healthcare basically, right? So it, it has, mm-hmm. it, it continuously rolls up all the way up to the state. And now it's starting to roll beyond the state where you're talking about like, you know, international markets as well. So, so this is definitely, um, what I think is going to be one of the bigger trends of 2015. And I really generally believe that the, the opportunity for, these smaller businesses to, to, to have a presence in the marketplace. Like I look at even OTC markets and I see that there's less and less opportunities every day because investment banks aren't just going to work with you as an OTC company. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's becoming very interesting. Everything is just getting bigger and bigger. And, and then it all clusters to the U.S. and it goes higher and higher and higher up to multinationals. So, well, Andrew, um, I, think I could probably talk to you for the rest of today if, if, um, if, <laughs> if my bandwidth permits. Very good, but, um, good, very good stuff. It, yep. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to being on your show. Um, and maybe you can tell the audience just a little bit how they can reach you if they're interested. Yeah, so uh, one of the things we have is a, a special email. It's askandrew at thedisciplinedinvestor.com. Of course, you can follow me over on Twitter. The handle is Andrew Horowitz, one long word, A-N-D-R-E-W-H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. Or you can check out thedisciplinedinvestor.com. We also have a lot of different technical indicators that we have available that we've worked on for a very long time that are pretty darn accurate for TradeStation, and that's under the TriggeredCharts.com domain. You can check it out there. Um, but just look my name up, and you'll find lots of stuff uh, online and get right to me. Well, thank you, Andrew. I think the audience really appreciated this conversation. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com.